Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Lauren Michelle Jackson about her book, White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. Lauren, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I've got to say, that's uh, such a great title. It really jumps out at you when it's, uh, you know, on on a bookshelf or something. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it, it's kind of it's kind of a mouthful, but you know, I think the you know the main title is supposed to be the the real eye catcher. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about how you became interested in writing about cultural appropriation? Yeah. Um, so I've always really been interested in, uh, I guess, what I call like cross-racial aesthetics um, and racial aesthetics more broadly, um, particularly in pop culture, but also elsewhere. And I've always just thought it was, I think the way that we read race or interpret race or even um, ignore race um, in a lot of the cultural objects that we, in mass cultural objects that we encounter on a daily basis has always been way more interesting and weird and ambivalent than I think we we give ourselves credit for, or that um, maybe you know mainstream publications give credit for. And so my interest in appropriation, particularly, arose out of the uh, I like to say like I don't know like the Miley Cyrus moment. Um, sure. in, in 2013, um, during the, the VMAs of that year, when it felt like that was sort of when the term really exploded in, in headlines from like gossip rags to the New York Times. It was like everyone was like, had realized this is the term we use now to describe this thing that has really been so eternal to American culture, but really exploded in this particular way in both pop culture and then also uh, online culture, digital culture, um, and and Miley Cyrus is kind of the avatar for that. And that also happened to coincide when I started doing a lot of um, public writing while I was in grad school. And so it kind of became, uh, like, I'm not a reporter, I don't have a beat, but it did become something that I was really interested in. And the more I wrote about it, um, I think the more developed my thoughts became until um, it, it materialized into something that could form the basis of a book. Yeah. I, in a lot of the examples in your book, it seems like there's this kind of simultaneous dependence on a racialized aesthetic, but then also a denial that that is what's actually going on, right? Yeah, I think we, I think we're really good at spotting the sort of obvious mass like obvious instances of masquerade so a uh, white girl twerking on a 
the, uh, you know, an MTV stage, like that's very obvious. That's very overt. Um, like Justin Timberlake, you know, wearing cornrows or something like that. Like these things are, are kind of very obvious. Um, I think we're less accustomed to thinking about the ways that we as consumers of culture and just like people who live in the world and interact with all different kinds of people and cultures through the internet, through television, through billboards, all, you know, mass culture, yada, 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 like how we sort of unknowingly um, incorporate that stuff on our bodies and how in a racial framework, the, the unevenness between how dependent we are on uh, black aesthetics and black cultural production and the disparity between like who actually gets to be known as like the tastemakers of, of American culture at large. Right. There's one sentence in your book that I, I particularly loved, which is you write, uh, leading discussions about appropriation have been limited to debates about freedom and choice when everyone should be talking about power. Could you kind of unpack that statement a little bit for us? Yeah, so the way the confrontation tended to go and probably still tends to go because it's catchy and clickable and and easy for a sort of inflammatory headline is that, you know, pop star does something bad. You know, they should not do this. Like, let us all gather around and shame them or whatever um, for these, like, you know, more overt instances of, appropriation and it really makes it seem like yeah it really makes it seem like it's a it's a like a matter of like a choice that this pop star and and, and it is in some sense of course it's and it's an aesthetic choice you know no one told or <laughs> you know Katy Perry didn't have to put on a grill like no you know that wasn't like a thing that she absolutely had to do to you know she's yeah. already very popular um, by the time she's making videos like like this is what we do, I think is the one I'm thinking of. Um, but it's like the issue, you know, the issue isn't that the issue isn't that she necessarily chose to wear a grill in the video. The issue is that when she wears a grill, it's quirky and it's weird and it's it's fun. Um, whereas the you know the kinds of people who sort of made wearing like wearing girls into a, a, a cultural uh, like made it into something that is like cool and, and beautiful and wonderful and hood, you know, those are, those people don't get to get the cultural cachet. Those people are going to be profiled in the, in the grocery store, in the, in the convenience store on, you know, in their own neighborhoods for, you know, things that are going to be, you know, become symbols of the, you know, the degradation of like black culture or something like that. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's, and, 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 but like going back to the sort of issue of, like, I hate to use the word intellectual property because like, you know, I'm not like, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I don't, (laughs) I don't study law in any way, shape or form. Um, So, you know, I kind of think of it more in cachet, but it does, it does, eventually get to that larger idea of like who is like sitting at the top of not just like record labels but fashion labels and fast fashion companies and 
who gets to put their name and actually profit off of off of the cool that that someone else um, created. Yeah, and, and I cool. think that word that word profit is really key. That it's not just a, a you know a kind of cultural recognition, but it's the the you know actual money that comes with that. You talk about how there's the the wealth gap between black and white Americans exists at every income level, so that even you know, someone, uh, a white person who's making, you know, $20,000 a year probably still has significantly more wealth than a black person making $20,000 a year. And that economic disparity is just never really talked about in these discussions about cultural appropriation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I still like feel, I like go back and forth on including that study in the introduction of the book. I think mm-hmm. when you, when you write, a certain type of book, like, you know, packaging is everything, right? So it's not just about like the title that grabs your eye. It's the introduction that like really seizes you and sort of shakes you and says, this is the thing you should pay attention to continue reading and, and kind of sets the tone of the book. And I think the introduction sets, and I don't know if you felt this way. I think the introduction kind of sets a different tone than the rest of the book. And I think it was Mm. because I needed to write this introduction that, you know, establishes appropriation as like a thing to care about when, you know, the book is not actually that invested in doing, you know, crunching the numbers on, you know, what kinds of, you know, what wealth is lost in the sort of massive legacy of like enslavement and whatever, because it's, you know, it's, yeah. an, inc- it's an incalculable number the same way that trying to calculate the the losses of fashion labels, um, cribbing from like young black and brown teens is like also like incalculable. And so mm-hmm. I'm not really interested in that, that uh, like the accounting of it, but it is one of those things that I just have a, a sense for that we, right. you know, isn't um, it isn't immaterial. And so when we were talking about the disparities between a record label or a pop star and just the average person on Instagram, like, yeah, power and wealth and, and all of that comes into play. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you're not a lawyer. You're also not an economist. So it's not, <laughs> you're not tracing the money. That's not the project of this book. No, not It at sort all. of reminded me of uh, the detail in No Logo, Naomi Klein's book about how, I don't know if they still do this, but in the 90s, sneaker companies used to like send people up to Harlem to just ask random black teenagers which sneakers they liked, like one of the new you know, prototypes of sneakers they liked and just be like, do you like, if, do you like this one? We'll give you whichever one you want for free. And, but like if they'd been, you know, working as a, some kind of a consultant, they would have been able to bill, I don't know, hundreds of dollars per hour for those conversations. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the title of your book derives from the Norman Mailer essay, um, which is like such a bizarre argument that seems like really offensive in some ways and really trenchant in some other ways. Um, so I, 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 it's been a while since I read the essay, but the takeaway is sort of about how white culture views black culture as the kind of prototype of cool. And he's thinking about sort of bebop and beat poets and stuff. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, why you wanted to name your book after this uh, essay and and kind of how deep this association of blackness with cool runs among white people? Yeah, um, 
I mean, I think I was, so the, the essay is like, yeah, so it's like not, I think it's like not what, I just like, I think it's just like one of those things that like kind of almost like similarly to like Eric Lott's Love and Theft, though like I have, you know, I don't really want to <laughs> draw like a comparison between Lott and like Mailer, this like incredibly, you know, violent, abusive writer, but like. I think sim. I think they're those those p- works are used similarly in the sense that like so like the white Negro essay, which is first of all very long, like it's always longer than you think. Like I think it's like nine thousand words long or something like that. Is like not actually about what I think a lot of people would assume it's about when they either evoke the name or you know say it offhand or see the title or whatever. Like he only uses that formulation like the white negro once throughout the entire essay similar to how people always like to invoke and i'll include myself in this eric lott's love and theft as the idea that like you know white people love black culture so much that they take from it which is like not actually the argument of that that study um at all but we don't have to get into that but back to mailer you know the white the white negro essay is like really trying to, you know, it's not really about Black people at all. It's really trying to diagnose the sort of shot nerves of this, like, up-and-coming youth culture that is, like, jaded and uninterested in the sort of life that's been laid out for them in the suburbs. They've seen war. They've seen an atomic bomb. They've seen, like, you know, and some, you know, in some case, you know, to some extent, it's like they are the beneficiaries of the, um, of the wealth that came out of America's involvement in that war. And yet, having seen such devastation are like, really uneasy, or at least in Mailer's reading, really uneasy about that inheritance. And so where do they look for? Or who do they look to, to kind of help them through or at least find a language or a sound to express their existential crisis, well, of course, they go to the Negro, the person for whom, like, existential crises, like, that is the default state of being. To be Black in America is to be <laughs> constantly in a state of, of questioning and undermining, like, your own, like, yourself or right to self or being or anything like that. And so that's kind of, like, his his read of like counterculture of bebop beboppers of uh you know the language of, of hip and whatnot um is that like you know the youths are like going through a tough time and they're like well black people are always going through a tough time and this is the music they listen to and these are the their haunts and and sort of molding themselves to that to kind of figure out how to move through life and a lot so, of it's about the atomic bomb, right? It's about this sense of white people suddenly are aware that they could be killed at any moment and black people have always known that, right? That's a part of the argument? Yeah, yeah, exactly, totally. Um, do you, th- I mean, do you think that he's diagnosing a real cultural shift in the sort of post-war period? Like, do you think that cultural appropriation looks different in the 40s and 50s than it did, I don't know, in the 20s? Um, I mean, I'm no, I'm no scholar of (laughs) 
the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s so i would feel i would feel unqualified to necessarily make that sort of assertion and that's Mm -hmm. also part of why i kept most of my book in the quote-unquote new millennium um because i just Mm -hmm. thought it was it would just be an easier or not an easier task but i think it would be a more intuitive task that wouldn't require me to either do the sort of like I don't know uh do the try to make like a historical lineage that maybe doesn't necessarily hold up if you actually go into the literature like I think yes obviously there is a conceptual tie between the sort of expropriation of labor that happened uh during legal enslavement and and the kind of extraction of cultural cachet that happens today um in addition to still the you know expropriation of of unpaid labor um but i i just think you know the the wider your historical scope gets like the the messier things get and if you Mm -hmm. in the and you know the more you ignore ignore the sort of messier entanglements like then you know that just like leaves you very vulnerable and i was like I, you know, I just like, I don't have time for that. Um, I have to write this book and also write a dissertation. So <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but, you know, of course, I mean, I would say, you know, of course it's different. It has to be, you know, mass culture as we know it is different and in some ways an invention of the mid 20th century. And so, so yes, of course it has to be different. I like to say, you know, I've said before that like once upon a time, you had to actually like go to the jazz club to like be hip and expose yourself to the, you know, you have to go to the quote unquote seedier part of town, right? Today you can just flip on Instagram and you might not even recognize what you're seeing as, as black culture, right? You might be getting it secondhand, thirdhand through a Kardashian or something like that. Um, And so that mediation I think is, is definitely different and definitely a byproduct of the internet age. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the more recent case studies that do kind of form the core of your book. Do you have a chapter on pop music, particularly the sort of uh, pop icons of the early 2000s, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera? Um, I feel like cultural appropriation is maybe particularly difficult to navigate for pop music just because you know, all American pop music comes from black people at some level, maybe with the exception of country, though, you'd even have people taking exception to that. So could you talk a little bit about how Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears dealt with their debt to black artists? Um, yeah, uh, so I think the way, well, I guess the way they dealt with their debt is like not not at all <laughs> that is to say like you know that i don't this think this is a theme in your book <laughs> um but or maybe well, how did they make use of tropes of black culture what did what did blackness do for them yeah so for christina aguilera who's the one i focus on um the most in the chapter i thought she had a really interesting she has a really interesting career arc in that she or at least as she, you know she claims she the got interested in music and singing and really developed her musical sensibility by listening to um, R&B records, jazz records, funk records, and um, driving into 
Philly, Philly, I believe, um, with her grandmother and older relative or something like that. Um, and you can hear that in the songs that were she chose or were probably chosen for her when she was a cast member on the Mickey Mouse Club and just coming out with this very, like I call it like a diva sensibility, which is really just to say like a voice that has been um, trained itself on the kind of vocal maneuvers of people like Whitney and, and Tony Braxton and Aretha um, and, and all these, all these legends. Um, and, and you could hear that in the, in the R and B, uh, in the R and B sound of her first album. And then there is like this really interesting shift that happens in the, the, the dirty era um her her third album um where she is using more of a kind of like hip-hop sound she's having music videos in that like take place in like somewhere in the hoods of nyc i don't know if it's like the bronx i don't know if it's like crown Heights. like i don't know where it is it's like actually not supposed to be anywhere it's just like sort of a vaguely brown neighborhood she's wearing box braids and afros on on the red carpet she's wearing a dark dark tan where you know she once was like very fair and had like blonde hair she dyes her hair black she's wearing like chaps and and all of this is kind of couched in the um like couched in the language of like teen star rebellion pop star rebellion which is a narrative that we've seen over and over again. And it's really interesting that this rebellion also happens to overlap with an interest in collaborating with hip hop artists with evoking hip hop sounds and, and doing that whole, um, that whole song and dance literally. Um, Mm -hmm. And then she takes a break, she comes back, she's all cleaned up as uh, one of the headlines say, and she is blonde and, but like, she is still, you know, it's almost like she's gone back to, uh, ironically, like her her roots <laughs> in the sense that she's also she's going back to that sort of classic R and B diva sound. And so I thought Christina Aguilera was really interesting because um, she is not black, but obviously, but she her her musical sensibility has always been informed by black artists and black music in a certain way. And across her career, you can sort of see her, see how that gets utilized in a whole lot of different ways. And so it really goes back to like what you were saying that, you know, the whole adage that, you know, American music is black music, black music is American music, um, which is true enough. But I also think, you know, to the, to the point about sort of more in-depth conversations at appropriation, like, I want to know, you know, I always want to know how, right? You can say, you know, you can point to a song and say like, you know, this has roots in black music and that very much includes something like country. But I also think it's more interesting to actually trace, okay, where are these certain sounds coming from, especially in pop music, which is so promiscuous in what it borrows from, you know, it'll take steel drums from one place and combine it with like the, 
I don't know, combine it with like a banjo or something like that. It'll be so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so reckless and and formless in a way that I think is really interesting. And I think talking about appropriation in non-punitive ways, we can actually discuss, you know, we actually can discuss where our music that we listen to comes from instead of just saying this is appropriation and trying Mm -hmm. to move on. This isn't someone you talk about in your book, but your book made me think a lot about Lil Nas X and how, uh, you know, Old Town Road in some ways is kind of appropriating in the other direction. And a lot of white country fans were really apoplectic about that, that country music. I mean, if you turn on country music radio today, you're going to hear a lot of hip hop influence. But when an artist rooted in hip hop decides to put a banjo in his song, even if it is a nine inch nail sample, people went kind of crazy. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a whole thing. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it all just goes to show that, like, I mean, we all know that genres are kind of fake or they're only as stable as the rules we give them. So, and that's very much racially inflected. Um, Of course, if you look at, like, the Grammys and what they've been trying to, how they've been trying to skirt giving Black people awards for, like, basically trying to keep Black people artists like corralled in these very specific categories so much that they have to like keep revitalizing like the like the what I don't know urban contemporary I think it was called and I think they just changed it Mm -hmm. again because like they really don't want (laughs) to let like people like uh people like Beyonce who like uses like a lot of different genres or someone like I don't know Tamasha or someone like that they really don't want them you know up for they really don't want them outside of this, like, this really amorphous category that they're like, well, you know, it's popular, but it's black. So, you know, right. urban, 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 whatever. Um, and so, you know, the same thing with country. So it's the same, it's the same um, logic that says that, like, a, a, a Florida Georgia Line song featuring B.B. Rexa with a trap beat behind it can be eligible for the CMTs and can be eligible for the country music charts and can be the longest running country music song single. I think, you know, I think it broke that record, but Old Town Road, because, because, because black, right. Cannot, right. Is not eligible for that chart, even though. Yeah. This really kind of speaks to the, the way that, you know, genres at a certain level do kind of cash out to be, to be about race. I mean, it's, it's hillbilly records and race records just kind of with a new name. I mean, I don't know what else urban contemporary means other than black people singing. Right. <laughs> like exactly. Like that's, that. that's the only That's why it's not <laughs> hip hop. Like hip hop is black people rapping and urban contemporary is black people singing. Right. <laughs> um, you, you also write a lot about fashion and, uh, you write that, uh, you know, properly crediting black influences might mean the end of fashion as, as we know it. Um, so what do you think, why do you think the fashion industry is so dependent on black aesthetics? Because, well, because the fashion industry is all about aspirations towards an avant-garde or what it will accept as avant-garde. And, in the history of like, I don't know, the history of aesthetics, which like sounds like such a, that sounds like 
I'm a philosopher now, which I'm very much Hey, you not. got your PhD for a reason. Feel free to use the phrase history of aesthetics if you want. <laughs> uh, but like, okay, I, you know, I'll stick mostly with, you know, literature since that's where I actually qualify. But like really in the history of like aesthetics and like avant-garde, you have people like uh, Picasso and E.E. E. Cummings who are all borrowing um you know, not even necessarily from uh, Black language or African art directly, um, though, of course, there's a lot of that, um, but really, like, the idea or the sense of something other or different that becomes the sense of the avant-garde. And so that, you know, that, you know, those are, you know, two prominent examples, but that happens over and over again um, in, in American art and letters as well, which is to say that like white people do something, white artists do something and they get applause from it, whether it's uh, sort of nonsense poetry or what have you. And then that becomes boring because, you know, what was avant-garde now goes mainstream and now it's boring. And now it's like, we need something else again. And so with fashion, like you see a lot of that, a lot of that cycling happen and you can, almost see it more it's almost more transparent because the fashion industry has these very concrete like seasonal schedules and I and I actually think it's interesting to see the way that like something like high fashion has been disturbed (laughs) literally disturbed by you know the fast fashion market which is like um which is like Kim Kardashian wears it yesterday and it's on Fashion Nova Mm-hmm. yesterday as well like <laughs> like that's <laughs> right, how right. that's how quick they work but fast fashion is also um dependent really dependent on on a certain idea of, of a black or brown aesthetic i mean fashion nova is case in point like you look on there and they're they're both catering to a specific audience which is to say they're catering to probably what it considers to be an urban market but it's also catering to you know the type of type of person who would dress up as racially ambiguous on Instagram or something like that. Mm -hmm. But so back to like the end of fashion, (laughs) it's like, if you are, you know, if to feed your sense of, of edginess, like requires you to constantly, constantly, you know, scrape from, and you know, it's not always just like black and brown kids or adults or people like Dapper Dan, it's, it's at just at large, like people who are beneath the people who get to make decisions beneath the, the, the literal, um, uh, in real life, Miranda Priestley's right. If, if Mm -hmm. you're, if to sort of revitalize yourself, you're always having to take from people who don't get credit for it. It's like, there is no really, there's no really redeeming that system it's just like the whole thing has to collapse yeah and you suggest a similar thing about the art world and i'm i'm not super familiar with the world of uh you know visual art but some of the uh case studies that you write about are just wild i mean you write about this uh character of donnell wolford which is a, a black woman character created by a white male artist named joe scanlon basically to make his work seem more interesting. 
Um, and and this seems to be a source of some controversy, but he hasn't been run out of the art world. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about this project and what he's trying to do and why he's getting away with it? Yeah, well, I mean, he's getting away with it because, like, the art world is, the art world is, like, crazy and also, like, it is so dark. Like, I just, like, I was actually afraid to, like, <laughs> write this chapter because I was just, like, it is so, it's such a world that is so absent from me. And, like, I'm in academia where, like, you know, you can't be in academia and not be used to, like, the presence of, like, dark money and, like, forces around you because, mm-hmm. like, that's what keeps the lights on, essentially. But if it's possible to, like, envision, you know, an even, like, <laughs> darker center of, like, yeah capital and circulation and like it is that it is like art the art world is that fine arts is like very that like when you see like it's literally money laundering for war criminals often right yeah like it's really really like the the there was a board member of the whitney who had like a company that was making chemical weapons that were being used against palestinian children or something like that i mean it's just like really some of the worst people warren Con. Kanders, Condors, uh, had to, he resigned from the Whitney board, but yeah. And there, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, and that's like, I mean, that's like one guy, right. Um, right. So Joe, Joe Scanlon, um, is an artist and a professor, um, I think at Yale by the time I was writing this, but, um, just the way that, you know, artists, go around. I I don't even know if he's still there anymore, but yeah, he created a character named Donald Woodford, who's a black woman who has her like biography, fictional biography, of course, is like changed over the course of uh, her creation. Um, But essentially she is like an avatar for other types of works that he's made. So like collages, paintings and things like that. And so he's, he would like submit her to like, like she's had a show. She's had like art shows where it'll, there'll be stuff on the walls, like stuff in the room for, and people will come and they'll look at it and it'll be, you know, all the copy will be as if this is a person that actually exists. And he's actually over the years recruited a sort of rotating uh, cast of like black women um, artists and performers to actually play the role of Dana Woodford, like in occasions where she, she, it has to be, um, you know, has to play the artist. And so. Right. Doing interviews and press appearances and stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, And so the, and like, so what I, I think the sort of central drama that I focused on was Dana Woodford's appearance in the Whitney Biennial, where again, it's like, this is, this is like an extended art project on behalf of Scanlon. And yet in the Whitney, like for sure, it's like, she's just listed like any other artist, you know, born 1978 from uh, wherever in Georgia. And it's just like, her art is just like there sort of unremarked upon un like no bracketing of anything whatsoever. And that's like kind of, I mean, that's kind of like the art world in a nutshell. I mean, I think we, People like to make fun of, um, I think we like to make fun of like performance art because, uh, I don't know, because it's, it's just like seems so outside the, 
the experience of what mass culture considers art. Um, but I mean, the art world, if you're a certain type of person, like really respects that. And I think for Scanlon, like this is like a kind of performance art. And so because it's art, it is therefore free of, of certain kinds of criticism. Um, mm-hmm. But he's, so, not, it's, he's not being honest about it. It's, I mean, it's one thing to say, now I'm going to do a performance where, you know, this person pretends to be Donnell Wolford. But like, I mean, like you said at the Winning Biennial, it's, it's not like he, it's, you know, Joe Scanlon as Donnell Wolford. I mean, cultural appropriation aside, he's kind of just lying, right? Well, I mean, I bet, I think that's like, but like that's performance art, right? Like how many, like, is it performance art if you're like going out into the street and saying, this is a performance, this isn't real, this is fake, right? I think part of, Mm -hmm. and I don't work on performance art, so I, you know, I don't want to step on anyone's toes because I actually don't know that much about it, but I do feel like part of the, part of the discipline though is, is earnestness. And Mm -hmm. the whole, and part of the point about the Donna Wolford thing is like, there is an earnestness about art that actually allows it to be very willfully um, ignorant about the things that actually make the world. And that includes race. Right. Which I think brings us to Dana Schutz and Kenneth Goldsmith, who are are two white artists. Dana Schutz is a, a painter and Kenneth Goldsmith is a poet uh, who have both made art about sort of black pain, violence against black people. Uh, and these works have been kind of widely conceived or widely considered to be, you know, very offensive and problematic. Kenneth Goldsmith, uh, you know, made a poem out of a, was it Trayvon Martin's autopsy report or? It was Michael Brown's. Michael Brown, Michael sorry. Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, with, with, with these two artists, it seems like, maybe contra Joe Scanlon, there does seem to be a, a, a an intention, a sort of, I don't know, admirable of misguided attention here to kind of draw attention to the problem of white violence against black people. Um, why do you think that intention uh, got so muddied? And, and why was, why were these pieces received so critically, at least once they became known outside of the small uh, circles where they were originally circulating? Um, I mean, when it comes to art, like, I don't really, I actually kind of don't care what someone's like intention was. I think Uh I don't, I don't really approach criticism that way. I don't approach it that way as like a viewer. I might approach it as like in a workshop or as a educator. And when you tell me I was trying to do this with this essay and I'm telling you, you know, well, it succeeded at this thing that you wanted to do and it failed at this thing that you wanted to do, but that's not really criticism necessarily or at least not to me and I think as especially as you know these are not like green fresh out of art school people no these are like celebrated a celebrated artist and poet people with like faculty positions and like yes like oodles and oodles like of money behind you like do you know what it takes to like get into like the Whitney like that's like, anyway, but like, that is, just, I, I, that is all t- I mean, I actually don't either, but I assume, right, you, know, right. you know, you don't just like scrape some pennies together and like mm-hmm. make a painting and someone's like, Oh, that's really cool. But, or, you know, maybe that is how it happened. I don't know. But um, like the, the point is just that like 
these people should know better or should at least they have the time to think about it. Like, it's like if you, and I think like someone like Kenneth Goldsmith, I think likes to be provocative. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like he couldn't, you know, if we're thinking about intention, like it's not like he couldn't have known that people would probably find the remixing of a like dead black kids autopsy like controversial at least or like you know repugnant or or shocking or something like that and so if we're talking about intention I have to think that's actually part of why he did it and it has to also do with his um method of poetry which which um avails itself of of all the language there is uh in that's that's there that's out there right he doesn't he doesn't make he doesn't make new language right he's always assembling from elsewhere as like we all actually ultimately are but he's Mm -hmm. more um he's kind of a limit case of that where i mean he has a book where it's literally every word printed in the new york times on a certain day printed put in the form of a book right right um and so again it's like another case of like um Another case of like, what was, I was like trying to draw a connection to something earlier that I said, but it's like sort of another case of like willful, it's like, you know, the art, because the art is so, you know, above any other concerns or thinks itself to be Mm -hmm. above any other concerns. It's just like allows a lot of like willful, like negligence that is actually like harm, like totally harmful and like messed up and also just like not good like I don't think the I don't think um the the Emmett Till painting was like a good painting like just like visually aesthetically technically like I don't think it was like good and I think people who are criticizing the painting were also saying that because a lot of people who are criticizing the the painting were also artists or art critics Mm -hmm. but that kind of got lost in the conversation over like censorship or whatever, but it's like the painting was bad and the intention behind it was also like incredibly ignorant. And so it's just like, but like, but it still made it into the Whitney, like black artists, like don't, (laughs) they don't get to do like half baked work and have it show up in like, you know, this vaunted um, show. And that's another issue that that the Whitney Biennial is like way less black as a percentage than, for example, New York City, right? Yeah, or yeah, I mean, absolutely. Or, but... or even I think even the country as a whole, right? I mean, it's a really tiny percentage of the artists that they show who are who are black. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another area that you write about pretty extensively is the internet, uh, which is an area you're clearly very uh, kind of proficient in. You talk about the, the intellectual influence of Tumblr on on your kind of knowledge of feminism, anti-racism as a as a young person. Um, why do you think uh, black people are so prominently? like memes like there's this idea of, of digital blackface that you talk about a bit in the book what do you think what's going on there um 
So black, I mean, black people have always, so white people like really, there's like a profound like misrecognition um, of affect and emotions when it comes, when black people look at white people. And I come at this from like a literary critic and like affect theory perspective. Um, But like, if you even, you know, if you even went and like, like, so like social scientists like do studies like where you know white people are like looking at different like black children or something like that and like they're always angry or, or furious or something like that uh, when like these kids have like neutral faces which is like has a lot to do with you know or says a lot about what how kids get treated in the classroom and in the prison to or the school to prison uh nexus and all of that um but you know, I think, you know, we, that is, that is just to say that I think white people tend to inflate when they see a moving black figure tend to inflate what is going on there. So it's not just, you know, we don't get credit for having sort of the subtle emotions that like any other (laughs) human being would have. And so when it comes to memes and, and reaction gifts, it's, in on in an in like online space where it's like not about the sort of subtleties of affective experience, but about doing something loud and big and hilarious and sassy and shady or whatever. Uh, I think the reservoir of black people doing stuff becomes very compelling. I think it also has to do with um, when it comes to gifts of like from reality television and movies and sitcoms and things like that. Um, it also ties back into what kind of, what kinds of media is available or what kind of roles are available for, um, for black actors and what kind of roles they're being asked to play and how inflated they are and how, you know, the sassy best friend and, and you know, all of that. And so that all feeds into, especially when you get into things like gift buttons, which are, basically attempting to taxonomize and, and regulate and similar to the way that when you go to Google search something, it's, it's something that's been predetermined, you know, the results you get are not necessarily the, actually the most quote unquote relevant, you know, the same thing with the gift button, the gift button is training you to see a certain amount of availability for the word that you're searching for. Um, and, and yeah. And you also write about the viral videos of white people calling the police on black people doing just uh, innocuous, normal people stuff, like uh, selling water or uh, sitting in Starbucks. And you write about uh, one woman who called the cops on a black child selling water. And then it later came out that she was the owner of a company that made medical marijuana for pets. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Um, that's like just right at that intersection of hilarious and depressing. Um, when you watch these videos, uh, are you able to enjoy the kind of comedy and these hysterical overreactions or, or is it just too, too scary for you? Um, I actually really don't watch the videos. I mean, I think maybe there's like a couple in there that I described and maybe I watched those, but like, Mm -hmm. I was not. I wasn't really that amused by the trend. I understood completely why people were amused by them. Um, getting to watch something where you know the ending, 
you know, ends in like some sort of like something that feels like maybe not justice, but like just desserts for the person making the phone call that's like safe to watch. Like, but yeah, I don't, you know, it those like videos make me like very anxious and it's like not actually that funny. And I find it kind of interesting the way like white people metabolize those videos too, mm-hmm. because I'm just like, you know, you guys are like, <laughs> you guys are like essentially deputized cops and, you know, you're laughing at, you know, permit patty one day, but like then, you know, white people are just like so quick to call the cops in any other instance too. So it's just like, and it obviously, very obviously didn't actually, you know, laughing at these videos for an entire summer didn't actually transfer into a, like any sort of a large scale aware awareness on behalf of white people about calling the cops, um, which is why, you know, over and over again, um, we see, uh, not so, you know, not so hilarious endings for a lot of these videos. Yeah. Um, you recently wrote an essay expressing some discomfort with the idea of the anti-racist reading list. Uh, these things that have been kind of circulating around the internet in the last couple of months and kind of seem to recirculate every time there's some very public uh, incidents of, of racial violence. And your book, the book we're talking about right now, has recently shown up on some of these lists. I wonder, how has that made you feel? Um, I kind of just laugh because I know that, like, if the person who's, like, trying to buy my book to, like, I don't know, get woke or something like that is probably going to be in for a rude awakening. Mm -hmm. Because, like, (laughs) my book doesn't really do a lot of, like... You know, it doesn't really do a lot of how-to. It doesn't really do a lot of, like, explaining. Like, I think there's explicating, there's, like, criticism. But, like, I think if white people are looking for the book that's going to be, like, make them feel good about reading about how, you know, bad they are. Like, if they're looking for a sort of, like, masochistic experience, like, they're probably not going to get it from my book. So, yeah, I mean, if people want to buy my book, like, yes, please buy my book. I would, you know, like that. But... I just kind of chuckle because I'm just like, you know, my book is not, it's not white fragility. I know it. I understand it has two words in the title and one of those words is white, but you know, it's not the same thing at all. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think those, I mean, you write about this a, a bit in the essay, but those lists are so interesting in that how, and that they really collapse a bunch of very different books from a bunch of very different writers writing across genre into this kind of like one shelf of like the anti-racist book, you know, and it kind of has this equalizing uh, quality. Yeah. And yeah, just like, it's like genre, it doesn't matter. Like people don't, it's not that people choose to write in certain registers, like for a particular reason, it's just all, you know, it's all anti-racism. Yeah. Um, finally, I'd like to ask you a methodological question. So uh, you teach at Northwestern uh, and you also have written for a really uh, incredibly wide range of different uh, outlets from Essence to The New Yorker to Teen Vogue to Paris Review. Um, how do you balance writing for this wide variety of different popular and scholarly audiences? 
Um, well, it helps that a lot of the writing I've done was done when I was in grad school, which is, I mean, so I was fortunate to be in a program that doesn't have, is pretty low on teaching requirements as far as grad students are concerned. I mean, I know I have, you know, friends who go off into programs and are teaching like a full course load, like from day one, but I think uh, Chicago's teaching is a lot more forgiving in that way, and you have a lot of time to, um, I don't know, sit and ponder. And I was always very restless, and so I like to, even when I was supposed to be just like sitting in, like reading, like for comps or something like that, I always kind of wanted to be writing and engaging with what was happening in the world. And so establishing a sort of public writing practice during that time allowed me to be more choosy when I get to be more busy and only take on assignments that I I really want. And the fact that I've never had to depend on freelancing to like eat is like a very, Mm -hmm. you know, is a huge (laughs) privilege. Um, Because I think if you look at like, you know, I'm very proud of the things I've written and I feel like I've, you know, written a lot over the years. But I think if you compare that to like the average freelancer, it's just like, it's like, that's like nothing. It's like child's play. Um, but I mean, you know, as for balancing the two, I think if you are a scholar of the contemporary or anywhere near the contemporary, you know, you always have to be in taking the things around you. And I think writing in, you know, I don't even like to call it public writing because I'm like, that just like implies, you know, it's it's so soaked in like, academia like exceptionalism or whatever but like Mm -hmm. writing for other types of publications has been not just freeing but also I think has improved both my academic and non-academic writing um in ways that I would have not have gotten just in grad school or would not even have gotten as a faculty member um one of the things I was thinking about the other day was like I've been like I've been more like I was more heavily edited in like as a grad student than I think in ordinary circumstances like grad students you like you really don't get you know an interaction with editing in quite the same way because committees are not you know they're not really most committees are not really line editing your work mm-hmm. or if they do that happens like way at the later stage if you're submitting journal articles and things like that again, it's like, it's really, you know, you're not getting, you know, you might get, you know, comments about inserting, you know, adding more to your lit review or bulking up here or citing this or like blah, blah, blah. But like on an actual like sentence by sentence level, like you're not, you know, no one's like taking your work and just like ripping it apart. Um, And so that's like been really useful. Um, and a lot of grad students don't take writing classes, which like they totally should, but like, especially in English, cause like we all think that like, we're like great writers. So like, we don't need <laughs> writing advice or whatever, which is like, so not true, but like, but I also like need that sort of like academic space to just like really sit and think with mm-hmm. something and, and research it deeply. And I think that's an inheritance from my time in grad school that I also bring to other sorts of projects that's really important. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I'm like that much of an, an odd fish. I think like I just kind of need both of these types of like ongoing registers of thought 
in that I can't really, I just like can't commit to one or the other. Like I need them both. <laughs> and, like, and in terms of your, like your, your critical voice, your writing voice, does that shift a lot when you're, you know, writing for a scholarly publication versus when you're writing for a more popular audience or, or is it, is it always the, you know, more or less the same voice variations on a theme? I mean, it's probably variations on the theme. I mean, I think, I think the difference, like, again, with like, um, like public facing, quote unquote, public facing publications is just like, like, you know, your work goes through probably more rounds of like immediate revision. You're probably going to have, especially for certain publications, like it's not just you and the editor, it's, um, there might be like an editor above that that you're working with, there's going to be a fact checker, there's going to be a copy editor, there's going to be people who are checking for, you know, things like house style, which is like, can be really rigid and also can be very, uh, like fluid, things like that. I think academia like has given me some, you know, I know, like when I'm writing for, uh, I guess, like, a strictly sort of academic audience, I can do things like have really long extended uh, subordinate clauses because I know that mm-hmm. you know academic audiences will like just deal with that but also again like I think learning how to write clearly is also really important as well um, and yeah I mean I guess it's just variations on a the theme like I don't think I ever sit down and I'm just like okay writing for you know this publication time to dumb it down or writing for <laughs> you know writing an article like time to really like flex on them or whatever I think I just mm-hmm. like you know, it's really guided by the scale of the work and they're just like different scales and different um, ways of working with sometimes the same types of objects. This book um, is really funny. There's a lot of like jokes, like really pretty hard jokes. Is that something that you f- you feel comfortable doing in, in a more uh, academic setting or is that something you, you feel like you need to maybe scale back? Um... I don't know. I mean, I like, I'm so like, I'm glad you noticed the humor. Um, <laughs> Eve Ewing, um, Eva Ewing blurbed the book and she called me funny. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was like so excited because I like, I don't think I'm like that funny of a person or like, I feel like I try too hard. And so, like, it's just like, that's why I just like admire, uh, I admire people in comedy and people who are funny like so much because I think it's like, that's like the hardest thing in the world is to be funny. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know. I think when I teach, like I, you know, maybe I probably enter into that try hard space. So like, I feel like I'm always like, at least I'm laughing. I don't know if anyone else is laughing, but uh, (laughs) I try to keep it jovial. Um, But, you know, I'm just like, brand new faculty so really ultimately I'm just kind of trying to put my head down and (laughs) learn what's what about about this whole this whole thing well Lauren Michelle Jackson thanks so much for being on the program I I really enjoyed the book and uh you know anti-racist leader reading list or no I encourage everyone to uh go check out the book and and learn more about these issues (laughs) thank you All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.